History Courses presents From Settlement to Superpower The Spanish Century Episode 4 Iberian Union Burgo de Osma, Kingdom of Castile, early October, 1469. It was a dark night, pregnant with the chill of oncoming winter. The guards on the battlements peered out into the darkness, illuminated only by the guttering torches affixed to the walls. They were the Count of Trevino's men, and they were on high alert. These were unsettled times in Castile, and the wise man did well to keep a sharp watch about him at all times. The nocturnal silence was broken only by the rattling of a lone cart's wheels and the weary clopping of horses' hooves. A group of merchants, accompanied by their servants, were slowly making their way along the darkened road toward the locked city gates. "'What do you want?' shouted the sentry at the small group of men. "'What are you doing on the road at this ungodly hour?' One of the merchants called back, "'Please, good sir, let us in the city. "'We're exhausted and have been on the road for a long time.' The guard cursed under his breath at these blasted travellers complicating his guard shift. "'Well, he would show them.' The party of travellers stood expectantly below, waiting to hear the creak of the city's gates opening, but instead of that, a large stone came sailing down at them from the battlements, glancing the head of one of the servants. The servant let out a yell of pain and fury, when suddenly a shout rang out from atop the walls. "'Are you mad?' shouted the voice at the soldier who had cast the stone. "'That's him! Open the gate at once, you fools!' All at once, the gatehouse exploded into a scene of hubbub and confusion. Men-at-arms rushed about to prepare the city for their guests' arrival. The gates were swung open, and the commander of the guard was stammering on his knees, begging forgiveness. "'Your Majesty, forgive us. We didn't know. We weren't expecting you. We are of your party. You're safe here with us.' The party entered the city, and the gates swung shut behind them. Early the next morning, a great cavalcade of horsemen galloped out of the city gates, headed towards the city of Duenas, where they would freshen up before moving on to Valladolid. Among them rode the servant who had been struck in the head by the stone, except that now he was not dressed as a servant. He was dressed in the finest raiment and rode at the head of the force. Ferdinand, King of Sicily and Prince of Aragon, had arrived at last in Castile. In Valladolid, Isabella, princess of Asturias and heir apparent of the kingdom of Castile, waited with excitement. She had heard the glad tidings of Ferdinand's safe arrival, and now she prepared to greet him, the man whom she had agreed to marry. The past few weeks had been possibly the most frightening and anxious weeks of her life, but at long last the period of uncertainty seemed to be drawing to an end. 
On the evening of October 15, 1469, she finally caught her first glimpse of her husband-to-be, excitedly pointed out to her by her faithful courtier, Gutierre de Cardenas, with the words, S.A.S. S.A.S. It is he! It is he! Ferdinand and Isabella were publicly married three days later in Valladolid. For the rest of their lives, they would be the most celebrated couple in all Christendom. They would war as equals, rule as equals, and share power as equals. As the people would later put it, Tanto monta monta tanto, Isabel como Fernando. They amount to the same, the same they amount to, Isabella just as Ferdinand. This fateful marriage between the prince of an impoverished kingdom and a princess on the run was to usher in the permanent union of Castile and Aragon and herald the beginning of Spain's golden era. The marriage of Ferdinand and Isabella was indeed a pivotal moment in world history. But the story of that wedding does not begin here in 1469. The story begins 15 years earlier, in 1454, with the death of King John II of Castile. He left behind him three children, 29-year-old Henry from his first wife, Maria of Aragon, and two children, 4-year-old Isabella and 1-year-old Alfonso from his second wife, Isabella of Portugal. Henry, being the oldest, succeeded his father as King Henry IV of Castile, but his rule would prove to be extremely unpopular with the nobility. Henry was a weak king who was unable to command the respect of the nobility, and what was worse, Henry gradually displaced the proud nobles around him and replaced them with a new clique of upstart favorites. These favorites were led by Beltran de la Cueva, the second son of the first Viscount of Huelma, who was himself a jumped-up merchant promoted to the nobility by Henry IV. The Castilian nobles were nothing if not prickly and sensitive to any slight on their honor, and unsurprisingly they soon came to deeply resent the king and his favorites, particularly Beltran de la Cueva. The resentful nobles bided their time, waiting for an opportune moment to attack the king, and oust Beltran and his clique. That moment came in 1464 when Beltran de la Cueva persuaded the king to sideline several of his political rivals, prompting the nobles to band together in rebellion against the king. The main angle that the rebels used to come at the king was regarding the parentage of his daughter, Juana. You see, Henry wasn't only an impotent king, he was also an impotent man. His first marriage to Blanche of Navarre ended after three years with a papal annulment. Henry claimed that some dark spell was preventing him from ever consummating the marriage with Blanche, and Blanche was sent packing home to Navarre where she was locked in a tower for witchcraft. After the fiasco with Blanche, Henry married Juana of Portugal, but it was an open secret at court that this marriage, too, was a sexless one. After seven years, however, Juana finally found herself pregnant, and in 1462 she gave birth to a daughter, also named Juana. 
From the start, rumors spread that Henry wasn't the real father of the girl, rather she was the daughter of Beltran de la Cueva. The disaffected nobles began to mockingly refer to her as La Beltraneja, Beltran's little girl. When the explosion finally came in 1464, the rumors were widespread enough that the nobles felt justified in rising against the king and Beltran, forcing him to banish Beltran from court and disinherit Juana in favor of his younger brother Alfonso, on condition that Alfonso would marry Juana when they both grew up. But Henry had no intention of abiding by the agreement he had made, and it soon became clear that he was backsliding on his agreements. But the balance of power was on the nobles' side, and so after an ignored ultimatum, they dramatically deposed Henry himself in favor of Prince Alfonso, publicly announcing the deposition by taking an effigy of Henry, removing its crown, staff, and scepter, and then tossing it off the throne and onto the ground. The effigy was then abused before a cheering crowd, and Prince Alfonso was brought up to the dais and declared King Alfonso XII. This piece of political theater, known to history as the farce of Avila, inaugurated three years of civil war between Henry and Alfonso's parties. The fighting only came to an end with the sudden death of the 14-year-old Alfonso in 1468. Officially, Alfonso had succumbed to a disease, possibly the plague, but the whispered rumors which floated around alleged that Alfonso was poisoned at the king's orders. The nobles who had supported Alfonso now turned to Isabella, Henry and Alfonso's sister, and asked her to take Alfonso's place at the head of the rebellion. Isabella wisely demurred and instead chose to enter into negotiations with her brother. In the final treaty, the Treaty of Toros de Guisando, Isabella affirmed Henry as King of Castile, but in exchange Henry declared Isabella to be his heiress and disinherited his daughter Juana. Insofar as marriage was concerned, the treaty stipulated that Isabella was not to marry without Henry's position, while on the flip side, Henry was not to force Isabella to marry against her will. But forces were at work which would upend the tenuous treaty of Toros de Guisando. Although Isabella had promised not to marry without King Henry's permission, and Henry had promised not to coerce her into marriage, neither side stuck to their end of the bargain. Henry attempted to maneuver Isabella into marrying first the crippled Duke of Guyon, brother to the King of France, and when that failed, he tried to force her into marrying the King of Portugal. In both cases, the marriages would have likely resulted in Isabella having no children and at the same time being removed from the Castilian political scene. Isabella, meanwhile, greatly feared such a possibility and soon entered into top-secret negotiations with King John II of Aragon for the hand of his son and heir, Prince Ferdinand. Aragon was at the time in a difficult spot. In order to raise the funds to crush a rebellion in Catalonia, the cash-strapped Aragonese were forced to pawn their border county of Rossello to the French. The problem was that the French subsequently refused to leave what they referred to as Roussillon, and the Aragonese, with no money and far fewer soldiers at their disposal, 
were stymied in their attempts to force the French out. The Aragonese were also beginning to clash with French interests in Naples, which would in time become a major theater of war between the Spanish and French, but for now was just a tentative rivalry between Aragon and France. John II of Aragon had been attempting to solicit a marriage with Isabella for quite some time now, and when Isabella responded with interest, he pounced on the opportunity. There were, however, a few obstacles in the way of Ferdinand and Isabella's marriage. The first obstacle was that, as Ferdinand and Isabella were second cousins, their marriage fell within the bounds of consanguinity prohibited by the church. If they were to marry, they would need a papal dispensation allowing it, and the current pope, Paul II, was unwilling to provide such a dispensation. This problem was neatly resolved with a forged bull from the previous pope, Pius II, authorizing Ferdinand to marry anyone within the third degree of consanguinity. Ferdinand and Isabella made use of this forged bull until Paul II died a few years later, and the forged bull could be replaced with a genuine one. The other and more concrete problem was that King Henry of Castile would never allow this match between Ferdinand and Isabella, and that the king's agents were closely watching Isabella for a single false step. This was a game fraught with peril, a game in which a single miscalculation or indiscretion could cost the 17-year-old Isabella her freedom, and quite possibly her life. Isabella's opportunity came in October of 1469, when the king traveled to the south to put down some unrest in the region. Isabella told those entrusted with watching her that she wished to visit her mother on the anniversary of her brother's death. In reality, she was trying to put distance between herself and the king until she could finalize her wedding arrangements. But it was at this point that things nearly went catastrophically wrong for Isabella. Down in the south, the king had received intelligence from spies in Isabella's household that a royal marriage between her and Ferdinand was near fruition, and that Isabella had left her place of residence. Infuriated, the king dispatched a large force to capture and imprison Isabella for once and for all. Isabella was forced to flee with mere hours to spare. She hid in the countryside until she was able to get a message out to her supporters, who immediately rode out to rescue her and bring her to the safety of Valladolid, securely held by her faction. Hemmed in now by the king's forces, Isabella could do nothing but wait for Ferdinand to somehow make his way to her. This was no simple matter. Henry's forces were in control of nearly the entire stretch of countryside between the Aragonese frontier and Valladolid, which made any Aragonese entry into Castile an extraordinarily perilous affair. Two of Isabella's courtiers had succeeded in sneaking through the border into Aragon, where they informed John II of Isabella's window of opportunity. Ferdinand did not hesitate. In the guise of a servant, he and a handful of courtiers snuck across the frontier on the daring dash across Castile with which we open this episode. When King Henry heard about the finalization of Ferdinand and Isabella's wedding, he was furious. As far as he was concerned, by her unauthorized marriage, she had blatantly violated her end of the terms laid out at Toros de Guisando. 
Well, if that was how his sister was going to be, then Henry would lose no time in repudiating his end of the treaty as well, and so in 1470 Henry restored his daughter Juana as Princess of Asturias, heiress to the crown. Now, civil war between the partisans of Juana and Isabella was all but inevitable after Henry IV's death. That death came in December 1474. Immediately following Henry IV's death, the Castilian nobles split into two rival factions, the Joannist faction and the Isabellian faction. The Isabellian faction comprised of most of the Castilian nobility, as well as the Kingdom of Aragon, which was not surprising given that Isabella was the wife and co-regent with the heir to the Aragonese throne. More interesting, and perhaps surprising, was the fact that among Isabella's supporters was none other than Beltran de la Cueva, the alleged father of La Beltraneja herself. The Joannist faction, on the other hand, was backed by France and Portugal, and comprised of primarily those Castilian nobles who were of Portuguese stock. Both France and Portugal had their reasons for supporting Juana against Isabella. As far as France was concerned, anything that strengthened Aragon's interests was against their own. As we've mentioned earlier, they were butting heads with Aragon in Roussillon and Naples. Henry IV had actually recognized this while he was still alive, and he had the young Princess Juana married to the Duke of Guyon, the crippled brother of the King of France whom we've mentioned before. As it turned out, Guyon died before Henry IV did, but even without this marriage, the French considered it in their interest to back Juana for the throne of Castile, if only to prevent the unification of the thrones of Castile and Aragon. The other, more active backer of La Beltraneja was King Alfonso V of Portugal. Following Henry IV's death, Alfonso married Juana, and he actively entered the fray to champion her claim on the crown of Castile. Thus, the War of Castilian Succession turned into a major international conflict, the result of which would permanently determine the future of the Iberian Peninsula. On the one hand, you had Ferdinand and Isabella championing a union between Castile and Aragon, while on the opposite side were the Portuguese and the French, who fought for a Castilian union with Portugal and the diplomatic isolation of Aragon. The Portuguese army under the command of King Alfonso V invaded Castile in May 1475, hoping to strengthen his Castilian supporters. Initially, Alfonso had hoped to take the city of Burgos, deep in Castilian territory, which was loyal to Isabella. However, following a lackluster display of Castilian support, he decided to take a more defensive stance and remain near the Portuguese border until a French army could arrive and link up with his forces. Ferdinand, meanwhile, had concentrated his forces and went on a counter-offensive against Alfonso, which culminated on March 1st, 1476, at the Battle of Toro. The Battle of Toro was a chaotic fight, with no clear victor on the field. The Portuguese left, under the command of their highly capable crown prince, the future John II, had succeeded in routing the Castilian right, but at the same time the main body of the Castilian army succeeded in routing the Portuguese right, commanded by the king and capturing the royal standard. 
Then, when the Portuguese crown prince returned from pursuing the routed Castilian right, he attacked the Castilians who had defeated the Portuguese right and were now scattered in disorderly triumph, defeating some of them and recovering the royal standard. After this counterattack, Ferdinand withdrew in good order from the battlefield, thus bringing an end to the battle. With a fight as messy as that, it's unsurprising that both sides claimed victory. But despite the Battle of Toro having been a tactical draw, Ferdinand and Isabella turned it into a resounding political victory by pouncing on the initiative and sending out tidings of a decisive victory over the Portuguese. Juana's Castilian supporters were thrown into confusion by the news, and her cause all but collapsed in Castile. Over the next few months, Juana's Castilian support evaporated, and overwhelming Castilian pressure compelled Alfonso's army to retire to Portugal, there to fend off Castilian attacks until the end of the war. Alfonso tried to go to France to obtain the promised assistance of King Louis XI, only to find that Louis had stabbed him in the back and was in the process of negotiating a separate peace with the Spanish monarchs. In a fit of despair, Alfonso first abdicated the throne in favor of his son for a few days, and then was persuaded to return to the throne, although as a practical matter he retired to a monastery for the rest of his life. Alfonso handed over all royal power to the crown prince, who would formally inherit the throne as John II after Alfonso's death in 1481. With the Battle of Toro, the forces of Ferdinand and Isabella had triumphed decisively on the Iberian Peninsula, but that was not the only theater of this war. Both Castile and Portugal had holdings in Africa, and each enviously eyed the other's overseas possessions. The war would bring with it a Portuguese attempt to establish a foothold in the Canaries, and a Castilian attempt to end Portugal's stranglehold on the west coast of Africa. We're going to discuss each of these theaters in turn, but before each one we'll need to give some background context. So let's begin with the Canaries. We've already discussed some of the background of the Castilian conquest of the Canaries. We left the Canary Islands in 1405, when Jean de Betancourt retired to Normandy and left the islands in the hands of his nephew and representative, Monsieur de Betancourt. And this is the point where things start to go haywire in the history of the Canaries. Monsieur de Betancourt ruled over the Canary Islands for nine years, technically in his uncle's name, but practically as though it were his own fief. Soon complaints began to trickle back to Castile that Monsieur was plotting to hand the Canaries over to the French, which in 1414 compelled the Queen Regent of Castile to send out three ships under the command of Admiral Pedro de Campos to restore Castilian suzerainty over the islands. When de Campos arrived with his ships, Monsieur de Betancourt didn't put up any fight. Instead, he simply handed over the islands to Pedro de Campos. Now, these were his uncle's islands, not his. But that wasn't a detail that bothered de Campos much. Upon his return to Castile, he sold the rights to the Canaries to one Fernando Perez of Seville, who sold it in turn to the Count of Niebla. 
The Count of Niebla eventually sold his claim as well, this time to a pair of brothers, Guillem and Juan de las Casas. In a series of bewildering piecemeal transactions, the brothers eventually transferred the islands to Juan's son-in-law, Hernán Peraza, who held all the conquered islands and the rights of conquest for the remainder by 1445. For his part, poor Jean Betancourt, who died in 1425, bequeathed the islands to his brother in his will, but by this time nobody was paying him any more attention. He was irrelevant. The Castilian grandees, passing the island around like a football, were the ones who would determine who owned the rights to the islands he had conquered at such risk. But even as the Castilian nobles and merchants were haggling over the Canaries, there was another man who had his eyes fixed on the islands. At this point in time, Henry the Navigator was just setting out on his Atlantic career, and the Canaries seemed to him to be a ripe prize just waiting to be plucked. As you'll recall, the Portuguese had claims on the Canaries ever since they sent out the expedition of 1339, and though that claim was long forgotten by all, Henry the Navigator revived it. This was the backdrop for his ill-fated expedition to Gran Canaria in 1424, which we've briefly mentioned in the last episode. The expedition failed, as we said back then, but Henry remained undaunted, and gaining a toehold in the Canaries would become a lifetime obsession of his. Now, when the Castilians heard that Henry had sent an expedition to capture Gran Canaria, they were furious. King John II of Castile sent a series of outraged letters to Portugal, upbraiding them for attacking a Castilian-owned island and trying to seize it for themselves. The Castilian reaction was so powerful that even the supremely self-confident Henry was temporarily thrown off balance, and in this state of disorientation, he made a significant political blunder. He formally requested that the King of Castile give him permission to conquer the remaining Canary Islands. The result was, of course, peremptorily dismissed, but that wasn't all. In requesting permission to conquer the remaining islands, Henry had implicitly admitted that they were the King of Castile's to grant or refuse. This request would come back to haunt him repeatedly, as Castilian lawyers would frequently bring it up to undermine Portuguese claims on the Canaries. But Henry was still determined, and although he didn't send any more expeditions to the Canaries during his father's reign, he sent another expedition in 1434, almost immediately after his father's death. This expedition, approved by Henry's brother, King Edward, aimed to try to conquer one of the Canary Islands, probably Tenerife. It, like the expedition of 1424, failed to conquer the island, but it wasn't a complete loss. As the unsuccessful expedition was returning home, they stopped in the Castilian-held islands of Lanzarote and Fuerteventura, allegedly carrying off hundreds of Canarians as slaves. But now as then, the Castilians were implacably opposed to Portuguese encroachment in the Canaries, and they sent an angry complaint to the Pope of depredations carried out by the Portuguese, including, they alleged, the enslavement of many Canarians who had converted to Christianity. 
The Pope responded with a papal bull forbidding any further raids on the Christian Canarians and ordering the immediate manumission of those Christians already captured. Henry's response to this setback came in the summer of 1436, when he sent the Pope a petition concerning the Canaries. This petition, equal in audacity to his earlier petition to the King of Castile, informed the Pope of a great expedition he had organized down the coast of Africa in which 400 converts were made. Of course, in Henry's parlance, making converts and capturing slaves were more often synonymous than not. Henry went on to brazenly misrepresent the situation to the Pope, stating that the islands his sailors had visited were as of yet unclaimed by any Christian ruler, and so he accordingly requested that the Pope give him the right to colonize and conquer these islands. Now, the Popes were far busier at this point in time with issues such as the growing threat to Christendom from the burgeoning Ottoman Empire than with some insignificant islands at the far end of the earth. Since Henry's request sounded reasonable, it was granted by the Curia without much further thought, and in September the Pope sent back a bull authorizing the Portuguese to carry on with the conversion of these islands. Moreover, the Pope granted the Portuguese sole rights to conquer the remaining Canary Islands not yet settled by Christians. It was a major diplomatic victory for Portugal, but it was a victory based on a blatant deception, and as such, it could not last. When the Castilians heard what had happened, they were furious, and they immediately sent an angry remonstrance to the Pope, refuting Henry's blatant lies that the Portuguese were the first and only kingdom to take an interest in the conversion and conquest of these islands. The outcome of this battle of letters was a foregone conclusion. Not only was Castile a more important kingdom with more influence in the Curia than Portugal, but they were also manifestly in the right here, and less than three months after he issued his bull favoring Portugal, the Pope sent out another bull reversing it, declaring that the first bull had been issued under mistaken pretenses and was hereby null and void. With the collapse of this scheme to gain papal sanction for a Portuguese conquest of the Canaries, Henry backed off from the Canaries for about a decade. The catastrophe at Tangiers and its fallout took up much of Henry's attention during this time anyway. But by 1445 he was once more focusing on the Canaries, this time with his eye on the island of La Gomera. Gomera was not one of the islands yet held by the Castilians, and Henry succeeded in landing some colonists on the island and establishing friendly relations with several of the native Gomeran tribes. For a time, these tribes actually became very important to the Portuguese, as they would accompany them on their slaving expeditions against the other islands, employing their impressive mountaineering skills to gain the Portuguese more human booty. In exchange, they were treated with special favor by Prince Henry, to the point that when a rogue Portuguese slaver captured twenty or so Gomerans, Henry had them released at once and returned to Gomera with gifts and European raiment. But Henry's activities alarmed Hernán Peraza, the current holder of the Castilian claim on the island. 
Peraza responded by establishing his own colony on the other side of the island, separated from the Portuguese colony by the mountains and canyons that crisscrossed the Gomeran landscape. Peraza made contact with the other tribes of La Gomera who had not been wooed by the Portuguese and persuaded them to make war on the Portuguese colonists and their native allies. Thus began a colonial proxy war between the Portuguese and Castilians, each side employing its native clients to attack their rivals. We know little of the course which this conflict took, except that by 1455 the Portuguese colonists had apparently been withdrawn, and only Peraza still had a presence on the island, although the Castilians did not yet fully control the island. But Henry was not the only one brought to grief by this saga. Hernán Peraza too suffered a great tragedy, one that dwarfed any disappointment felt by Henry at the failure of his scheme. His appetite whetted by Gomera, Peraza sent an expedition to subdue the more populous island of La Palma. This expedition was defeated by the native Canarians, and in the course of the fighting, Hernán Peraza's only son, Guillén Peraza, was struck in the head by a stone and slain. Guillén Peraza's death brought this phase of the Castilian conquest to an immediate halt, and the Castilians would not attempt to subdue any more islands in the Canaries for nearly three decades. Even today, the tragic death of Guillén Peraza is commemorated on the island of La Palma by a ballad, composed shortly after the defeat it describes. Weep, ladies, weep, if God gives you grace, for Guillén Peraza who left in that place, the flower now withered that bloomed in his face. Guillén Peraza, Guillén Peraza, where is your shield and where is your lance? All is undone by fatal mischance. But returning to Henry the Navigator, who you must have noticed by now was a man who simply never gave up, we find a new scheme in the works in 1447, even as the fighting on Gomera was still underway. This scheme hinged around Massillo de Betancourt, the faithless and unpopular nephew of the late Jean de Betancourt. By any account, Massillo de Betancourt never held any legal rights over any of the islands. He had originally held the islands merely as a representative of his uncle, and following his dubious cession of the islands to Admiral Pedro de Campos, from whom, as we've said, the islands passed to the Count of Niebla and from thence to the Las Casas Peraza family, Monsieur de Betancourt remained on the island of Lanzarote, governing it under a rather ambiguous tenure on behalf of whoever legally held the island at the moment. Monsieur was apparently quite unpopular among the settlers of Lanzarote, and for whatever reason, possibly the consolidation of the islands under Hernán Peraza, Monsieur de Betancourt decided in 1447 to cut and run. His ticket out of Lanzarote was Henry the Navigator. Henry had previously reached out to Massio and offered to buy the lordship of Lanzarote off him. This was a right which Massio did not hold, but Prince Henry was never a man to be dissuaded by pesky details such as that. It didn't take much persuasion to convince Massio to consent to this blatantly illegal transaction, 
and in March 1448 he formally ceded the island of Lanzarote to Henry. Messio himself was spirited off the island by the Portuguese, who gave him asylum, land, and a permanent stipend on the island of Madeira, where he peacefully lived out the rest of his days. Henry, elated by his victory, sent a military force to occupy and govern Lanzarote. But in this case, too, Henry's Canarian achievement proved ephemeral. Just two years after the Portuguese took possession of the island, the Castilian settlers rose up in rebellion and drove them out for good. In response, Henry sent out a force of five caravels and 300 armed men to retake Lanzarote, but the Castilians had fortified the island in the interim, and the frustrated Portuguese could do nothing but sack the other Canarian islands in a fit of impotent fury. Henry's mariners followed up with a policy of effectively blockading the Canaries, attacking any Castilian vessel they encountered in those waters. The furious Castilians complained to the King of Portugal about the outrages and even threatened war, but all this had no effect on the Portuguese, who understood that Castilian threats of war over the Canaries were mere bluffs. The Canaries were simply not important enough to justify the expenditure of blood and treasure that a war would necessarily entail. Matters escalated in 1452, when Hernán Peraza suddenly died. Being as his son died in the attack on La Palma, his claim was inherited by his daughter Inés and her husband, Diego García de Herrera. The Portuguese saw this as an opportunity to gain the islands and up their pressure on Castile, demanding that the king order the young couple to sell their rights to Portugal. The Castilians naturally enough refused this demand, and relations between the two countries continued to plummet. For a while, it looked like the situation between Castile and Portugal would just continue to deteriorate, but the convoluted saga of the Castilian-Portuguese rivalry got a new twist in 1453, when the two kingdoms abruptly entered an unexpected détente. The reason for this détente was the fact that Prince Henry, soon to become King Henry IV of Castile, had set aside his first wife, Blanche of Navarre, and was now seeking to marry the daughter of the King of Portugal, the Princess Juana. And for the sake of tying loose ends together, yes, this was the dead bedroom marriage which would later produce Juana la Beltraneja. At the time, it was hoped that the young and lively Princess Juana would be able to sufficiently get Henry's blood up and produce an heir. It was probably during these marriage negotiations that Henry the Navigator removed his colonists from Gomera and ceased his attacks on Castilian colonists and shipping. But while Henry the Navigator had at least tacitly accepted Herrera's claim over the four islands of Lanzarote, Fuerteventura, El Hierro, and Gomera, he still had not given up on the three unoccupied islands of Gran Canaria, La Palma, and Tenerife. During the period between the wedding negotiations and the actual wedding, which took place in 1455, King John II of Castile died, and the betrothed prince now acceded to the throne as Henry IV. Henry the Navigator lost no time in badgering the new king endlessly for the rights to conquer the remaining Canarian islands, 
and in 1455, Henry IV finally gave in to the pestering and ceded the rights of conquest for the islands in question. But there was a catch. In fact, there were several of them. Firstly, when Henry IV gave the rights to conquer the remaining islands to the Portuguese, he had completely ignored the rights of Inez Peraza and Diego Garcia de Herrera. As far as they were concerned, Henry IV had no right to unilaterally hand over their islands to the Portuguese. And secondly, when Henry listened to the Portuguese nobles who were badgering him on Henry the Navigator's behalf, he did so in a fit of pique, and in a manner consistent with Henry IV's character, he did this in a capricious fashion. Instead of ceding the island to Henry the Navigator, upon whose behalf the nobles were very obviously lobbying, Henry IV instead went ahead and gave the islands directly to the leader of the delegation himself, Martino de Ataide, the Count of Atugia. This embarrassed both Prince Henry and Ataide, and no concrete action was taken by Ataide to conquer the islands he had been granted. Following Henry the Navigator's death in 1460, Ataide sold his claim to Pedro de Meneses, governor of Ceuta. Meneses soon sold the islands off to Prince Ferdinand, brother to King Alfonso V of Portugal. But even as the Portuguese were busy bandying about Henry IV's grant of the Canaries, Henry IV himself revoked the grant in 1468, on the grounds that the initial grant he had made to Ataide was null and void since Herrera had really held rights to the island all along. Over the next several years, Herrera attempted, with very limited success, to gain a foothold on the islands of Gran Canaria and Tenerife, but these attempts brought him into conflict with both the natives and the Portuguese, and very little of note was achieved during those years. This was the situation in 1476, when war broke out between Castile and Portugal. In November 1476, less than a year after acceding to the throne, Ferdinand and Isabella confirmed Herrera's rights to the Canaries. Herrera, however, agreed to cede the rights of conquest for the three remaining islands to the crown for five million maravedis. Ferdinand and Isabella immediately dispatched an expedition of 600 infantry and 30 horsemen to Gran Canaria to seize it for themselves. Immediately after landing on the island, the Castilians were attacked by the islanders, who hoped to drive them off the island as they had driven off so many attempts before, but this time the Castilians proved too strong. By the end of the day, some 300 Canarian warriors lay slain on the battlefield, to only seven Castilian losses. The Castilians had established themselves on Gran Canaria, never to leave. But there was still a very significant threat. The Portuguese had heard that Ferdinand and Isabella sent a force of hundreds of men to conquer Gran Canaria, and unwilling to allow Castile to take the island for themselves, they dispatched a large fleet of 17 caravels filled with men and provisions to crush the Castilians and secure the island for Portugal. Upon arriving at Gran Canaria, the Portuguese made contact with the native Canarians and assured them that they had come to defeat their enemies the Castilians. 
the Castilians now found themselves in a sticky spot. They were outnumbered by both the Portuguese and the natives, and if the Portuguese would be able to gain a foothold on the island, they would be doomed. If the Portuguese could gain a foothold. Therein lay their deliverance. Although the Portuguese were way more numerous than the Castilians, they only had enough small boats to disembark 200 men at a time. The Castilians noticed this vulnerability and they attacked just as the first contingent came ashore. The Portuguese were not expecting an attack of this ferocity and the landing party was repulsed with great slaughter. This victory left the Castilians in control of the beachhead and the Portuguese, unable to land, were compelled to depart. Indeed, nobody knew it at the time, but this turned out to be the last significant Portuguese attempt to establish themselves on the Canary Islands. But for the time being, the situation remained as it was on Gran Canaria, as the Castilians didn't have sufficient supplies or unity to push into the interior, while the natives did not have the wherewithal to expel the Castilians from the island. So the Castilians had succeeded in holding their own on the Iberian Peninsula and in the Canaries. However, Ferdinand and Isabella's attempts to defeat the Portuguese farther abroad, on the Guinean coast, met with complete disaster. We last left the Guinean coast with the death of Henry the Navigator in 1460. By that time, his explorers had reached modern-day Guinea-Bissau, and right about the time of Henry's death, another explorer, Pedro de Sintra, had reached Sierra Leone. But after Pedro de Sintra's voyage, we have nearly a decade of silence. The reasons for this are easy to understand. Voyages of exploration were risky, expensive, and seldom resulted in a financial payout that made them worthwhile. Meanwhile, there was plenty of gold and slaves to be acquired in the areas already discovered. Without a compelling prospect of profit or a strong personality such as Henry's to encourage it, Atlantic exploration languished, quite literally, in the doldrums. Portuguese settlers established a colony on Cape Verde during those years, but no further attempts were made to explore the African coastline. Atlantic exploration only picked up again in 1470, the result of private enterprise rather than royal policy. In the very end of 1469, an enterprising Portuguese merchant by the name of Fernão Gomes bought a monopoly from the crown on all trade from the Guinean coast, as well as a monopoly on all trade in guinea pepper, or grains of paradise. This contract was to last for a duration of five years, during which time Gomez was obligated to pay the crown 300,000 reals a year, as well as to explore a hundred leagues of coastline for every year of the contract's duration. Gomez did fabulously well during this period, to the point that when the contract expired, he extended his monopoly by a year on the same terms. As far as exploration of the Guinean coast was concerned, Gomez far outshot all expectations. The first expedition he sent out in 1471 discovered as far as Cape Three Points on the coast of Ghana. 
This was about halfway across the underbelly of Africa, far beyond where any explorer had gone before. More importantly, Fernão Gomez's explorers, João de Santarém and Pero Escobar, discovered the location that would soon become the nerve center of Portuguese Africa, Elmina, simply translated as the mine. Elmina was in what later became known as the Gold Coast, on account of the fact that the region was full of gold. Gomez had a factory or a warehouse set up in Elmina immediately, and his agents worked tirelessly to accumulate gold, pepper, and slaves to be sent back to Portugal. In the next year, another of Gomez's explorers, Fernão de Poe, pushed on to Nigeria and discovered some of the Atlantic islands in the area. In the next year, 1473, another milestone in Atlantic exploration was reached. In that year, Lopo Gonçalves, another of Gomez's men, became the first European to cross the equator, reaching as far south as Gabon. Throughout this period, gold, slaves, ivory, and pepper flooded into Portugal, filling the coffers of both the crown and her merchants. The Castilian merchants of Seville could only look on in envy. When war broke out, Ferdinand and Isabella decided to send a Castilian expedition to the Guinean coast to capture Almina. Not only would having a foothold in Western Africa be a great boon for the Castilian merchants, but even in the immediate run, Ferdinand and Isabella were strapped for cash, and the successful seizure of Elmina would provide them with all the funds they needed. And so in 1478, a Castilian fleet of 35 ships descended upon Elmina to conduct slave raids, gather gold, and assert Castilian dominance over the region. The Castilians had been at Elmina for several months, trading and raiding, and had accumulated a vast amount of gold when catastrophe struck. A Portuguese fleet of merely 11 ships sailed into the harbor, catching the Castilians totally off guard. The result of this Portuguese surprise attack was the capture of the entire Castilian force after a very brief and very one-sided fight. All the ships, all the crews, all the guns, and all the gold, all were seized by the victorious Portuguese. The Battle of Guinea, as the surprise attack came to be known, decisively ended any Castilian hopes of taking over the Portuguese assets in Africa. Meanwhile, events on the continent, including France's separate peace treaty with Aragon and the papal nullification of Juana's marriage to King Alfonso of Portugal, made it abundantly clear that the Portuguese didn't stand a chance of installing La Beltraneja on the Castilian throne. The Castilian victory on land and the Portuguese victory on sea formed the basis for the Treaty of El Casavas, by which the War of the Castilian Succession was finally brought to an end. The Treaty of El Casavas declared Isabella to be the Queen of Castile in exchange for a guarantee that the Castilian supporters of Juana would not be penalized for their opposition to her ascension. Territorially, the Portuguese recognized the Castilian claim on the entirety of the Canaries, but the Portuguese got the better end of the deal. 
The Castilians recognized not only Portuguese sovereignty over those African assets they already controlled, but also control over, and I quote, lands discovered and to be discovered, found and to be found, and all the islands already discovered and to be discovered, and any other island which might be found and conquered from the Canary Islands beyond towards Guinea. In other words, the treaty granted Portugal exclusive sovereignty over all those possessions she already owned, such as the Azores, Madeira, and Almina, as well as any future discoveries southward and eastward of the Canaries, extending all the way to the Indies. The Portuguese were also granted exclusive rights of conquest to the Emirate of Fez in present-day Morocco. This treaty was subsequently ratified by a papal bull in 1481, which reaffirmed Castilian control over the Canaries and Portuguese control over basically everything else. With the Treaty of Peace between Castile and Portugal, the two kingdoms continued along their respective paths, Castile consolidating its control within its own sphere and Portugal expanding ever outward. The next decade saw Castile engage in constant warfare, both on the Iberian Peninsula and overseas. On the Iberian Peninsula, the forces of Castile and Aragon slowly but steadily chipped away at the remaining territory of the Emirate of Granada, the last remaining Muslim polity on the peninsula. The campaign, which lies beyond the scope of this episode, continued until January of 1492. In that month, Granada itself, the last Moorish stronghold on the peninsula, surrendered to Ferdinand and Isabella, thus bringing to an end the 750-year-long Reconquista of the Iberian Peninsula from the Moors. The conquest of Granada was an event that captured the imagination of all Europe, and was much celebrated throughout Christendom. But even as this glorious conquest was underway, the Castilians were engaged in a far more squalid, far more brutal campaign to extend their sovereignty and faith throughout their claimed dominions. The Canaries were not yet fully subdued, and the Catholic monarchs would not rest until they were. The first order of business was to reduce Gran Canaria to submission. The Castilians had a foothold there ever since 1477, but bedeviled by poor logistics and internal dissension, they were never able to move into the interior. That changed after the close of the war, and between 1481 and 1483, the Castilians brought the rest of the island under their control. It was not an easy task. While many of the natives agreed to convert and submit to Castilian rule, many others fought back fiercely, and the Castilians were only able to reduce the interior by means of savage warfare and reprisals, until at last the island was deemed pacified in 1483. The next nine years saw the Castilians preoccupied with the conquest of Granada, but they did still see some action in the Canaries. The natives on Gomera rose up in 1487 and murdered Hernán Peraza the Younger, grandson of the original Hernán Peraza, which led to a bloody Castilian reprisal in which every male above the age of 15 from the tribes involved was executed, with the remainder of the population sold into slavery. The last two islands of the Canaries fell over the four years following the capture of Granada. 
La Palma was taken between 1492 and 1493, and Tenerife, the last of the Canaries, finally fell completely under Castilian control in 1496. As the Castilians consolidated their hold on their zone, the Portuguese were rapidly expanding. In 1481, King Alfonso V of Portugal died and was succeeded by his son John II. John had long taken an interest in African trade and exploration, and no sooner had he begun his reign than he resumed the work of Atlantic exploration. King John sent out a man who had proved to be one of the greatest Portuguese navigators of the African coast, Diogo Sao. Sao made two voyages and explored more territory than any explorer who preceded him. From where Gomez's explorers left off just below the equator, all the way down to the present Namibia, some 20 degrees south, or approximately 1,400 miles. Sao was able to penetrate so far largely as a result of the earlier established Portuguese settlement at Elmina, where he stopped and resupplied. From there he was able to move swiftly southward, making efficacious use of both land and sea winds. In August 1482, Sao perceived that he must be at the mouth of a great river, as the water was fresh and seaweed abundant a full five leagues out to sea. Sao and his men turned eastward and sailed into the mouth of the Congo River. Sao immediately opened friendly relations with the Congolese natives, assuring them that he came with peaceful intentions and merely wished to trade with them. He was well received and the Portuguese and Congolese exchanged gifts, and native guides took several African Christians to meet their king, who they reported lived some distance in the interior. The plan was for Sao to pick up the men on his way home. From the Congo, Sao moved on southward to Angola, before turning around and returning to the Congo. When Sao returned, he was irritated to learn that his delegates still hadn't returned from meeting the Congolese king, and he unilaterally seized four Congolese visitors to a ship to come back with him to Portugal. He made it clear to the Congolese that he would return within 15 months and bring the hostages back with him, at which time he would exchange them for his men. Sao returned to tremendous acclaim in Portugal, and the king was delighted to meet and converse with the Congolese hostages, one of whom was a highly intelligent noble named Kakudo who had learned sufficient Portuguese to furnish the king with a wealth of information about the Congo. Kakudo and his three friends were treated with great respect throughout the duration of their stay in Portugal, and were furnished by the king's orders with garments of the finest silk. Before long, Sao set out on his second voyage. We have only sketchy details regarding this voyage, but we know that he returned to the Congo and exchanged the hostages, to the great rejoicing of the Congolese. From this point on, the Portuguese would have tremendous influence in the Congo, and indeed, by 1491, the King of Congo and his family had converted to Catholicism. From the Congo, Sao moved southward, where he erected a stone cross at Cape Cross, in modern-day Namibia. This is presumed to have been the southern terminus of Sao's expedition, and on his way home, sometime in 1486, the redoubtable explorer died.
his work was almost immediately picked up by another intrepid explorer, one far more famous than any we have mentioned thus far, Bartolomeo Diaz. Diaz set out from Portugal in 1487, only two years after the death of Sao. Taking advantage of his predecessor's extensive exploration of the African coast, Diaz would be the first European to discover the Cape of Good Hope, which he, according to legend, more accurately named the Cape of Storms. As a matter of fact, Diaz himself missed the Cape at first as the result of one of those storms, and it was only after finding the coast to his north that he realized that he had indeed sailed past the southernmost tip of Africa. The route to the Indies was now right in his grasp, and Diaz wished to push forward and consolidate his fame and reputation by being the first European to reach the Indies by a direct sea route. But, alas for Diaz, his long-suffering crew was now growing mutinous, and with a heavy heart he was forced to turn his ship homeward. Diaz saw the land of India, said a Portuguese chronicler, but like Moses and the promised land, he did not enter it. It was only a matter of time until this Portuguese Moses would have his Joshua, when the Portuguese would finally open their sea route to India. That occurred a decade later in 1497, when Vasco da Gama sailed all the way around Africa and arrived in Calicut to negotiate a trade agreement with the Zamorin. It was a sweet and well-deserved victory for Portugal, the fruits of over 70 years of labor, struggle, and danger. But by this point in time, earth-shattering events had already taken place far to the west, where an obscure Genoese seaman in the service of Castile named Cristoforo Colombo had discovered what he believed to be a transatlantic sea route to India, but which in reality was a new world. If you're enjoying From Settlement to Superpower and would like to get access to more material of mine concerning other times and places, or if you would like to see maps and charts and family trees and any other supplemental material that might enhance these episodes, or if you would like a fully cited and annotated transcript of each episode along with a complete bibliography of all my sources, or even if you just want to support this work, then you might want to head over to my website, historycourses.com, and subscribe. Subscriptions are not very expensive, and you'll gain access to all of the above. There's material there on ancient Rome, medieval England, the American Revolution, and in time, there will be so much more. I would love to see you there, but regardless, I'm looking forward to seeing you on the next episode of From Settlement to Superpower.